ago, I came across a book which had a deep impact on my life. It was called God's Underground. And it was written by a Romanian pastor named Richard Wormbrand. In the book, he tells the harrowing account of how for 14 years he suffered imprisonment and torture for Christ at the hands of the communist government. And as long as I live, I don't think I'll forget some of the excruciating descriptions he gave of his agonies. Yet even as I now recall them, devastating though they were, they were not in fact the most striking feature of that book. For you see, what really shocked me, more than Wormbrand's description of his sufferings, was his explanation of why he suffered. He said, for instance, that to be in prison, such as he was, was a calling from God. And he added that while human beings had caused his pain in the first instance, it was God who had ultimately permitted it. Now maybe like me, when I first read those statements, you are somewhat shocked, surprised by them. And yet we really shouldn't be so surprised. For if we come back to the Bible, if we head back in time some 2,000 years to the early church, the suffering church, we find that Wormbrand is not extreme at all. For we discover a community of believers who not only trusted in a God who permitted pain, but in a God who had purposes for them in their pain. Now one proponent of that way of thought was an eminent leader in the early church named Paul. And Paul was a special messenger of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle. But he was also a pastor of many churches. And on one occasion, he wrote to a church under his care in a bustling city called Corinth. And what Paul stressed in that letter, at least in part, was the sovereignty of God over the believer's suffering. A dynamic which Paul illustrates with an example, a severe example, from his own life and experience. And therefore tonight I want us to consider together some of the lessons that Paul learned in God's school of suffering under this title, Pain's Purposes. So let's turn then to the Bible and to 2 Corinthians and chapter 1. This is our reading for tonight. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles available in the church pews. Our reading is 2 Corinthians Chapter 1 and verses 8 to 11. However, we'll pick up our reading at verse 3, just to get the, the context. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And now our verses. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Amen. John Bunyan, who, as many of you will know, was the author of Pilgrim's Progress, once made a telling statement about normal Christian experience. He said, a Christian man, or Christian woman, is seldom long at ease. When one trouble's gone, another doth cease. He was expressing what Christians have known across the world and down the centuries. That if I am a follower of Jesus, of this I can be sure. Troubles will be common, ease will be short-lived, and one trouble, one struggle, one trial will tend to follow the next. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you will know that to be an accurate description. However, while Bunyan's statement is true of every Christian, you might say that for the Apostle Paul, it was true with a certain intensification. You see, when Paul was set apart, right back in Acts chapter 9, to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, he was also specially singled out to be a sufferer for Christ. As God promised a man named Ananias concerning Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And God was true to his word with Paul. He experienced many hardships. And time and again, as Paul would venture through doors of gospel opportunity, doors which God had left ajar, he would discover an adjoining passageway of pain. And our text this evening gives us an insight a glimpse into just 
how terrible some of Paul's sufferings actually were. He lifts away on his inner anguish during a particularly trying period of his life. And he shares it with the Corinthians, as we consider it tonight, in three chronological stages. It's a, it's a three-stage process. We begin, first of all, where Paul begins, and it's not high up on the mountain top, but it is deep down in the very depths of despair in the valley. I wonder how Paul would have fitted in with us on the average Sunday morning or Sunday evening at church when we go through the pleasantries and we usually ask one another, how are you doing? Uh, and uh, if we're asked the question, we usually answer, don't we? Uh, yes, I'm fine, thank you. Yes, getting by, not bad. Uh, keeping my chin up. In fact, anything uh, except that things might not be going fine. Even if that would be the most accurate description to share over the tea break after the service. However, Paul says, no, I want to tell you in all honesty that in this situation, I was despairing. However, it's really doubly surprising for Paul's first hearers that he should be so open about this fact, especially when you grasp something of the background of this particular letter. Because it seems to have been the case that a number of false teachers had sprung up on the scene and were spreading uh, all sorts of false reports uh, about Paul for anyone who was uh, willing to listen. And they'd been saying, in essence, that for various reasons, Paul was not a true apostle. They said that for various reasons, he was an invalid messenger of Jesus Christ, whereas, of course, they were sufficient on this count. And one of the things they seem to have been suggesting was that Paul's suffering record, which everybody knew about, somehow disqualified him from being a true messenger of Jesus. They were, they said, a sign of God's displeasure. And so we can imagine them reasoning, reasoning well, uh, the reason that Paul is suffering more than anyone else is probably because Paul is sinning more than anyone else. And therefore, you can't trust him as a leader. You wouldn't want to follow someone with that kind of character. And like many proponents of the so-called health, wealth, gospel, prosperity gospel today, they probably added that an obedient Christian should always be carefree and trouble-free in their lives. Healthy, wealthy, and wise. And therefore, as Paul writes this letter in response, he begins by confronting this misguided theology head-on. And he says, in verses 3 to 7, let's be really clear about the kind of God that we worship. The kind of God we're dealing with. Because in actual fact, says Paul, the God we praise, verse 3, is not a God who condemns us in our troubles. That's as far from the truth as you can get. The Christian God is the God of all compassion who comforts us in all our troubles. And moreover, he adds, the truth of the matter is that our suffering is actually evidence of our relationship with Jesus uh, because it demonstrates, verse 5, that the sufferings of Christ, 
He was a suffering saviour, are overspilling into our lives. And it's almost as if to underscore his point that suffering is legitimate before God, that Paul now gives this personal illustration from his own experience. He says, I want to share with you an example of the privilege of pain. I want you to count a terrible experience in my life, but show you how God used it for my good, for my profit. Now, unfortunately for us, as Paul writes this uh, section to inform his uh, listeners uh, of what's been going on, uh, we are not so informed as they were at the time. And there's a number of tantalizing obscurities here as to what was actually going on. For one thing, we don't know for sure whether it was just Paul who was suffering or whether it was Paul and some others. Is Paul using the royal we here or uh, speaking of himself or is he collectively speaking of himself and Timothy who wrote the letter with him or some others? And perhaps even more of a problem is that we don't know the precise nature of Paul's hardship. He mentions that he went through this terrible difficulty but he doesn't tell us in fact, what the difficulty was. Presumably the Corinthians already knew the circumstances, which is why Paul doesn't elaborate. And nevertheless, so we might have our curiosities, I think that knowledge of the case in question is probably not all that important. Because whether it was an illness, or whether it was an imprisonment, or a riot in the city of Ephesus, or some other situation... What Paul wishes to impress on his listeners is not the external bare bones of the facts. What he wants to highlight is the inner feelings, the heart feelings, the inward struggles, the here's how I felt about it. And therefore what follows is a description of uh, Paul's inner anguish, which he gives us in four little phrases. Firstly, he says, in verse 8 then, that we were under great pressure. Or more literally, we were greatly burdened, says Paul. This is sometimes an idea that was used to describe an animal that was overly weighed down by the cargo that it was carrying. Or the thought was sometimes applied to a ship on the ocean, which again was excessively weighed down by what it was carrying. And Paul was saying, this is what we were like. We were like that ship, weighed down, sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Secondly, he adds, the hardship we faced was far beyond our ability to endure. Or again, literally, I was powerless to endure. Not only, says Paul, was I sinking beneath the waves because of this hardship, this heavy cargo, he says, but also I didn't have the strength to toss the cargo over the side and save my own skin. And therefore, he says, I could see no way out of this situation. And I have to admit it, verse 8, uh, we despair even of life. And he flips this on its head in verse 9. Indeed, we felt the sentence of death. Now, it's legitimate, legitimate to ask here, I think, why Paul was prone to such deep and, you might say, negative feelings on this occasion. Why the despair for Paul. Uh, I mean, as Paul's confronted with death here, we might not expect him to be despairing. 
Isn't this the same Paul who over in Philippians, as we've studied it this year, said, Philippians 1 verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that Paul comes face to face with death, has he suddenly changed his mind? Well, I don't think that is what Paul is saying. Let me give a couple of suggestions as to why Paul might have been despairing and then you can think through yourself why you think uh, this was the case. One suggestion might be that Paul was simply not looking forward to the prospect of dying. Now, I say that carefully, not that he wasn't looking forward to death, but to dying. Because what Paul said in Philippians was that death, as a completed act, would be great gain for him. Because beyond death was a greater, more intimate knowledge of Christ. And therefore, Paul says, that would be wonderful gain to me. Better by far. However, that doesn't rule out the possibility that Paul may have been grieved as he is now faced with the imminent prospect of his death and perhaps a painful death. Even Jesus, you remember, when confronted with death, when he came to the hour, it brought him to his knees in agonized prayer. One other suggestion might be that Paul's despair was linked to what he viewed as a premature departure, a premature end to his ministry. You see, Paul wasn't at the stage that he had arrived at some years later when he wrote to young Timothy. And he said, Timothy, I fought the good fight. I've now finished the race. I've kept the faith. No, he might have thought, I still have unfinished business. Not least this Corinthian church with all its problems still within and now these new threats from the outside. But whatever the case for Paul's anguish, it is a reminder to us, is it not, that any Christian any Christian can hit rock bottom. There are none of us immune, ruled out of the pain process. And even if we haven't arrived there yet, we can be sure that the time will come when we will arrive at that desperate place. Even in the comfortable West that we live in, we all face the last enemy of death if Christ should not come. And yet here's a strange thing to say. Thank God for such desperate places. Because you see, it's often the case, indeed sometimes it's only the case, when we get to ground zero that we reach up our hand and we say, help me God. And this is what happens to Paul. He moves from initial despair, secondly, to dependence. Samuel Rutherford, uh, one of the Puritans, used to say that when he was cast down into the cellars of affliction, he remembered that the king always kept his wine there. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, once said that they who dive into a sea of affliction bring up rare perils. Beautiful thought, isn't it? And friends, there is no greater peril to be recovered from the depths of our despair and our struggle than the jewel of our faith. This is why God permitted Paul to go through this terrible trial. You know, usually when we're going through a difficult situation and someone 
says to us, you know, why do you think this happened? We're totally at a loss for why it's happened. Paul says, I know why this happened. Verse 9. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but trust in God who raises the dead. Now notice that there are two effects of this suffering on Paul. Or another way you could say there's a disease and then there's a, a, a remedy, a solution to it. Negatively, Paul says that God brought me to death's door in order to purge me and wean me off of self-trust, self-reliance. That we might not rely on ourselves. Some things we can just get so detached to, can't we? I don't know if any of you have seen the program on television. My wife and I were watching this yesterday for our sins called Nanny 911. And it's... uh, Basically, horrendous children. If you think, if you get children and you think they're bad, then watch this program. You'll feel so much better. <laughs> and uh, this, uh, this situation, they brought the, the, the nanny in and the kids were doing all sorts of terrible things. But one of the things that the kids were still doing, they were about, I think they were four, four and five years old, they were still depending on their pacifiers. Right, that's American, okay? They're, they're dummies, as you might call them. And the uh, lady, when she came in, she said, the first thing we need to do is get them off this. We need to wean them off it. It's totally uh, wrong that they're still dependent in this kind of, of way on this. And so often, we are so dependent on our own resources and the things that uh, we uh, find our reliance in. Charles Spurgeon, once uh, again, uh, he wrote a sermon on this verse, verse 9. And he made some very perceptive comments about it. He said, I should have thought that Paul was the last man to be in danger of trusting in himself. So singularly converted, so remarkably clear in his views of the gospel, that all could see that his reliance was upon grace alone. Spurgeon said, this is the Paul who wrote Romans. This is Mr. Justification by faith alone. And here he is, apparently, struggling with self-reliance. And therefore, Spurgeon concludes, if Paul faced this danger, then surely you and I are not immune. It is plain that no clearness of knowledge, no purity of intent, and no depth of experience can altogether kill the propensity to self-reliance. Now, what's so bad about self-reliance? What's so bad about a little bit of self-confidence? I mean, that's what uh, all the kind of modern gurus of our day, the self-help people are saying, isn't it? Look within yourself and enjoy what you see and believe in yourself, trust in yourself. So what's so wrong about that? Well, you could answer it in this way. You could say that self-reliance would not be a sin if you were God. If I was God. Because if you were God, you would be all-powerful, you would be all-wise, all-knowing, altogether pure and holy. And therefore, if you looked within yourself and you realized you were fully sufficient, that would in no way be a sin for you to do that. But you see, the problem is that we're not God. We're creatures made by God. And therefore, we're not only foolish, but we are morally wrong to depend on ourselves. When we ignore the God who gives us life, and breath, and everything else. And sad to say, 
so many people today are living and dying with that kind of self-reliance problem. The same problem that Adam and Eve had back in the Garden of Eden. When they said to God effectively, thanks God for your help up to now in creating us, but uh, from now on we'll just go it alone, we'll go it solo. And maybe you're one of those people who really has bought into this whole myth of complete self-reliance. I can do it. The myth that you can somehow claw your way up the mountain of God's holy standards and clamber into heaven's gate. The illusion that your best will be good enough for a God of perfection. The myth that your solution to the problem of your sin is better than God's. I'll just try a bit better. Rather than God's way, this is my son dying for you in your place to do what you cannot do. We need to be like Paul and trust in God. And of course we need to keep on trusting. Remember, Paul is a mature Christian here. He's not an unbeliever. He started on the journey of faith. But he's a reminder that we continue to struggle with this problem if we're not careful. We so easily drift back to the old dependencies. And so, as we were hearing this morning in the sermon, it's so easy for us to suddenly be trying to sort out all our own problems and all our own troubles in our own strength, rather than in Christ who gives us strength. And you see, this is, friends, why suffering is so crucial. Suffering restrains it draws back in our self-reliant tendency. Suffering reminds us of our absolute frailty. Suffering reveals to us the poverty of our own resources, but also the infinite resources of God. Think about how this worked for Paul for just a moment in this text. I mean, how is self-trust going to help you when death comes knocking at your door? What will believing in yourself do for you at that moment? What resources are you going to draw upon when faced with the last enemy? Your health? It's not going to help you. Your intellect? Your family, your friends who are powerless? Your money? Not all the millions in the world can buy a single breath. And your only hope is God. And if I may say this respectfully, your only hope is a God of resurrection. This is what Paul says. He doesn't just trust in any God, but in the God who raises the dead. I wonder tonight whether you need to affirm this trust in God for the very first time, or whether you need to reaffirm your trust in a God like that. However, there's an unexpected twist in the tale as we come to the third and the final stage of Paul's trial. Paul began with despair. He learned, or he relearned dependence. But thirdly and finally, he sees God's deliverance. Deliverance. I'm told that if you are a lifeguard, uh, now don't quote me on this, uh, or even follow my advice, but I'm told that uh, if you're trying to save a drowning individual, and if you're a thinking lifeguard, you're thoughtful, 
you should probably let them go beneath the water for the last time. Now the reason is, if you try to save them when they're still kicking and struggling and screaming, then the chances are they might drag both of you down to the bottom of the, of the sea floor. But if you arrive on the scene, after they've given up trying to save themselves, then it is a whole lot easier to draw them to safety. And this is exactly how God often works with us. Not that God doesn't have the power to save us. But God wants us to see that he can save us in the present without any need of our resources. And so he waits in Paul's case until Paul's hands have gone limp. His eyes have closed in expectation. Death seems imminent. It seems it's certainly coming. And just at that moment, God comes to his rescue. His temple rescue. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. Paul had resigned himself and God comes to rescue. And this in itself has taught Paul another valuable lesson about God. Indeed, it's given him a greater confidence in the God that he trusts. You see, it's one thing to trust in a God and put your faith in a God of the future. To expect that on that final day, God will raise your, your decaying dead corpse from the grave. But it's another thing to expect God to do great things in the present. Paul had come to reaffirm his trust in the God of resurrection, but this temporal deliverance reminds him that God can powerfully intervene, deliver him in the here and now. And therefore, one of the purposes for our pain is that we might see God's deliverance from it. As time and again, he brings us up. He brings us out. We are in that problem we thought we would never get out of. And the Lord delivers us. And it's intriguing, isn't it, that Paul adds in verse 11 that this salvation that comes from God, as God works, is also in response to the prayers of God's people. He says, Paul, I don't want to give the impression that God in his sovereignty over our trials and troubles somehow bypasses us as human beings. No, your prayers can work perfectly in tandem with God's saving work, with his deliverance. Notice the two aspects in verse 11. He, that is God, will continue to deliver us as you, that is the Corinthians, help us by your prayers. So it's not a waste of time when Sunday by Sunday we bring our prayers of intercession for other people. It's not a waste of time. Or when we pray for that particular issue again and again in our fellowship group, that person that's got a difficult family situation, that person that's struggling spiritually and the darkness just doesn't seem to lift. It's not a waste of time when we pray on for these people. God answers prayer. And as we come to plead before the throne, God acts in amazing power and so often delivers us from our temporary struggles. Now that should encourage us to pray. And moreover, when we realize that it often has a ripple effect as well. Because not only is the delivered person encouraged, God has rescued me, he's brought me out. 
Not only is the prayer thankful, God has heard my prayer, but also the hearer. The Christian who happens to hear about the answer to prayer, of how God delivered so-and-so through the prayers of so-and-so. So, says Paul, verse 11, many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So let's not be fatalistic about our trials and our troubles. Let us have faith in future grace, but also in a God who delivers us in the here and now and in the present. So there we have it, three stages in Paul's terrible hardship, but some wonderful lessons that he gained. I was interested as I was looking at this, how often the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament came to mind. In fact, Paul's experience kind of mirrors what Jonah's was like. First of all, he sank down to the very depths of the seafloor, if you like, to despair. Then at that desperate place, at rock bottom, he uh, reaches up to God in dependence. And then finally, unexpectedly, God delivers him and shows him his power. Brings him out to the light of day again. And yet even as we see this pattern of pain in Paul's life, isn't it so true that even as we view the lessons he learned, it is often so hard for us to apply these sorts of truths to ourselves when we're in the midst of a crisis, when we're right in the middle of the struggle. I finish with this on a personal note. It's sometimes difficult to choose the text you're going to preach on. Uh, you've got the whole Bible to to choose from. And uh, therefore, uh, when you try and pick just three or four verses like tonight, you feel as if you've got to justify why you're choosing it. And my wife, Nikki, asked me a couple of weeks ago, she said, uh, once I selected it, she said, uh, so why have you chosen that text? And I didn't have a very good answer for her. However, two days later, she had a bit of an innocuous fall, broke a bone in her shoulder and some other things. And uh, the last two weeks, Trying to prepare this has been heavier weather than usual in my life. I'm not saying it's been big suffering, just little suffering, but enough to hurt, enough to make things difficult, and sore enough to pose these questions very vividly for both of us. Who am I leaning on? Whose resources am I drawing upon? And am I willing to lay aside my best efforts to trust in a God who raises dead men, dead women in dead-end situations. And in a God who never wastes 